In this first episode, we'll be discussing intersectionality and its use in teaching practices. We'll be taking this journey together alongside professors Jessica Harris and Saran Stewart, in which they share how their personal experiences and educational foundations guide their work. Take it away, Milagros. Thanks, Omar. I'm thrilled to be introducing Dr. Saran Stewart, who is an associate professor at the University of Connecticut. Her research focuses on access and equity, post-colonial theories, decolonizing methodologies, and international and comparative higher education. With us today, we also have Dr. Jessica Harris, who is an assistant professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her research focuses on critical race theory in education, multiraciality, and the intersections of race, gender, and campus sexual assault. Both of these scholars are advancing the fields of higher education through their research using intersectionality as a framework, which makes them perfect for our first episode this season. Saran and Jessica, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective on how intersectionality can be a lens from which we enter and enact higher education and anti-racist teaching, especially since you both use this lens to do your own research. To get started, Jessica, can you tell us a bit more about what anti-racist teaching means to you? Sure. Um, you know, this was difficult for me to answer because I just teach in the manner that I teach and I do, I would say, yes, um, you know, my teaching is anti-racist, but more so my teaching is informed by a critical race theory lens, as you mentioned, Milagros. Um, a lot of my research, all of my research is informed by critical race theory. And so my teaching is very much informed by critical race theory as well. So what that really means for me is that um, my teaching, it centers how racism is endemic to education, right? It centers settler colonialism and anti-blackness. Um, it really pushes back on these comforting white majorita majoritarian stories, right? So a lot of the curriculum that students might see is centered on whiteness and, and white men. And so it's really pushing back on, on that, um, that understanding that that's where knowledge lies. Um, it also really pushes back on the black-white binary, right? I think a lot of times, um, because of anti-blackness, because of, um, you know, how institutions were founded on the transatlantic slave trade, we tend to focus, we being educators, may focus, tend to focus on um, anti-blackness and black students, faculty, and staff, and that is absolutely necessary. But I also think it's really important to push back against that black-white binary and focus on settler colonialism and native students and native realities and Asian students and xenophobia and so on and so forth. So I think CRT is inherently anti-racist, but I also think anti-racism has become a buzzword more recently. And so I just want to kind of, I want to say, yes, I am anti-racist in my teaching, but more so I'm really focusing on um, the tenets of critical race theory and infusing those tenets into my teaching. Awesome, Jess. So happy to see you. Um, so, you know, the thing I think that's strong through Jess and I, to be quite honest with you, when we think about answering this question is that we had our grounding at the same institution. <laughs> and so we had the same kind of ideological, philosophical underpinnings kind of rooted. So I can see some of our answers are going to overlap. <laughs> so anti-racist teaching, um, is really cemented for me in particular in a decolonizing frame, looking at emancipatory ways of understanding, knowing, delivery content. So it's, it's, it's a dual focus in terms of really focusing on what is not through capitalist lens. And that's where a lot of my anti-racist work is gonna literally be connected to 
anti-colonialist work as well and then just reframing it into a more decolonized space and the reason for that in particular is having taught outside of the u.s for so long to a predominant i've told my students this semester that i've only ever taught in my academic career all black students ironically um, as an adjunct faculty with the University of Denver, I've taught a mixed group of students, but my majority of my academic um, career is that. And I count that as a privilege, but it also lets me understand what I've been grappling with recently is um, trying to really deflect on what we considered um, the colonial gaze that each of us being taught in Western col colonial um, institutions are going to be pervasive in this rhetoric and the constant challenge for us in doing this work is situating our work or ethics or morale into equity anti-racism um, decolonization critical race focus and so we're centering those works but it's a constant pushback and i would argue in doing this work you're also constantly regulating yourself and the work that you do and understanding the means and which you're doing it. Because for me in particular, it's the unlearning of education that has become ever present in this anti-racist work and anti-racist teaching with our students. Um, and it's really interesting in coming back to teach in the United States. And it's significantly different to be quite honest with you. Um, teaching a predominant homogenous group, even though it's a, historically what we would consider a marginalized group it's not in their context so that's a whole different centering and recentering for how this work is done from a global perspective from a post-colonial decolonized perspective but it all is intertwined in the current essence of when you're in predominantly white global northern capitalist societies it is required of you if you really want to be about this um equity work yeah no thank you for that and you know one of the um things that i want to ask you is a question that i once came across um in a book chapter by gloria latin billings and that question just really stood with me because I had those questions when I was coming across the work. So I appreciated that she actually titled the chapter, the question everybody was asking her, which was, yes, but how do we do it? So I'm gonna ask you this, like you've broken down what it means. Take me inside of your classroom, take us inside of your classroom. Can you um, either share some principles that you enact or maybe just give one example, like concrete as possible, what does it look like in action in your classroom? Um, let's start off with Saran. Sure. So absolutely bar none, the only way I've been able to do this work is to do self-reflexive journaling. And it doesn't matter if I'm teaching um, hierarchical linear um, modeling, structural equation, statistics, qualitative research, methodology, or comparative higher education it does not matter. It's a tool, an academic tool I've used and a number of scholars use it as well, where I assign um, all the readings, I ask the students to journal throughout the semester, where they just suppose their lived experiences and integrate and layer in 
salient quotes that resonate and that ha they have dissonance with so that they can grapple with this thing called academic jargon across the spectrum of courses. And the, the whole purpose of that is to also introduce them to authors. Um, I, I love to do it in STEM fields in particular, but to introduce them to authors that are non-white. And the reason for that is to break through the rhetoric of this anti-blackness curriculum that is pervasive throughout in particular global northern institutions and even former british colonial institutions as well and the reason so in doing that that then in many ways what i've seen students do and it takes um, a couple of required journals right they're grappling with the jargon the academic rhetoric trying to really understand it and then trying to map on their lived experiences. I've seen how they're better able to understand the reasoning, the purpose, how they situate themselves, but most importantly, that they can do this, that they are a part of the narrative and not excluded from the narrative. So that's one example and one tool that I've used to kind of really situate the students writing language, um, especially when you're dealing with non-native English speakers, um, also trying to grapple with um, imposter syndrome <laughs> in the academy. Um, as I've taught, 90% of my students across the seven years um, have all been first generation students. And so this tool is breaking down the myth of what is um, higher education writing higher education overall to simplify it to its bare bone content to how it relates to the self so that's one one example thank you that's fantastic jessica what are your thoughts yeah like saran said we overlap a little bit um with the reflective exercises and i really want to stress the point that it doesn't matter what class you're teaching that we should be thinking about anti-racist teaching or you know, pushing back on uh, normative understandings of whatever's in the curriculum, right? So one of the things that I do do, regardless of if I'm teaching student development theory, if I am teaching critical race theory or racism in higher education um, or a stats course, which is so not my lane, <laughs> but if I were teaching that, I would start out with students reading the first week, something about settler colonialism, something about anti-blackness and how it relates to higher education, right? So right now, I usually have students read um, an article by Glenn from 2015 about settler colonialism as framework, which isn't about higher education, but really having students bring that back into, okay, so this might be more general about US society, but how does this map back to our work as practitioners, as educators, as researchers? And then I also always have them read Lori Patton Davis's, um, Dr. Lori Patton Davis's post-secondary prose, which uses CRT to really map, um, map how anti-blackness really was the foundation of the higher education system in this country um, and other countries as well. Um, and so I start with that. Um, I also think it's really important, I think Saran mentioned this, but again, pushing back with the curriculum. So who's, who? like not only what themes and what identities am I, um, putting into my syllabus, putting into the readings, but also what scholars, right? So people can be writing about uh, native students or about multiracial faculty, but those individuals can still be white, cis, hetero men, right? And so it's coming from a specific perspective. And so being really intentional in not only what the topics are in the class, but also who is writing about these topics, right? Um, and also just to get a little bit more 
into that, it's also what institutions, what journals, right? That we're not just um, upholding whiteness and white supremacy by putting in only articles that are in the Review of Higher Education or AERJ, which are very much these top tier journals, but have very much been influenced by whiteness and white supremacy. Um, and having a conversation with students about why I do this and how I do this and what they're reading. Um, the one, the one other thing, two other things I will say. One is that I am also intentional in putting in readings about whiteness and white students and white faculty, because I think that the absence of, of whiteness in the curriculum isn't then inherently anti-racist, right? That we need to be critiquing whiteness and how that operates uh, on the college campus. Um, and the other thing I will say too, is that I've become more and more intentional about, about I guess, infusing different forms of racism and forms of, uh, you know, how white supremacy manifests. So not only are we talking about settler colonialism and anti-blackness, but we're also talking about xenophobia. We're also talking about mono-racism, which affects multiracial individuals, racist nativism. And so really getting students to think a little bit more deeper about not only how do these systems um, intersect and influence me, but also how might I be upholding these systems, right? And being privileged by some of these systems. That's amazing. I mean, what you both are doing just sounds like, one, I need to take your classes. <laughs> so I have to figure out how you can enroll or audit. But also, um, I'm curious about what the response, what's your experience with student response? And what kind of range of responses do you receive um, with the type of teaching that you're doing? Um, so I'm going to uh, ask Jessica first, and she just went um, last. So you mentioned a few things there about, you know, the curriculum and that you explain, you know, to students, not just the what, the themes, uh, the core ideas you're going to cover, but the who and the why of those who. Um, and in addition to that, really trying to deepen and expand or broaden ideas about what racism is and all the variations in which racism can show up. Um, what kind of responses have you received in, in your teaching experience? Yeah, thank you for this question, um, because it allows me to reflect on my own privilege and passion. <laughs> um, so at the moment, so I've been at UCLA now five years and the response has been lovely. Like it's almost to a point where students are like, I want more, they really push me. So some of the reason why I've added in, okay, so let's talk about xenophobia and racist nativism and these other forms of racism is because these students are demanding it. They're demanding it and it's also that there's just such a di racially diverse group of students that I have in the classroom, which I am so blessed to have. And I know I'm blessed to have that because I also taught at another institution before UCLA, uh, University of Kansas. I'll put it on last. But University of Kansas reflects so many other institutions that we have in the US, uh, being predominantly white, historically white, uh, settled in their curriculum of whiteness um, and very comfortable being there. And so I had so much pushback my first year of teaching. And it was everything that I read. It, it, I would say it as academic deja vu. That's how I would describe it, where I'm like, oh, I've read this in the literature. I've read that white students push back against women of color or people of color faculty members in the classroom and say, oh my gosh, this person just always wants to talk about race. They make everything about race. They're not articulate. They don't know what they're talking about. I can't, I can't really learn anything from them because they're not as smart as a professor should be, right? I experienced all of that at the University of Kansas. One, because yes, it was a predominantly white cohort of students, but also because that was, nobody else was pushing back against the understandings of, of 
whiteness and racism within the program, within the institution, within the world, within the country. And so UCLA is very different. Um, it has its issues as every institution does, but I am very, very blessed to have students who are clamoring, chomping at the bit to um, consume critical ways of knowing, to consume how do I be anti-racist in my future practice or my future research. Um, and so I've been met with a lot, a lot of support and love and um, so much more positivity from students. So I'm very, very blessed because I know that that is a very huge outlier experience. Yeah, and before we transition to Saran, um, if I could just ask a quick follow-up, um, which is in one setting you're saying, you know, you're kind of like the sole or the one or the um, one among few who are offering this type of teaching, offering this type of curriculum. And so the response, some of the response you're getting is also because it's not an expectation context-wide, right? It's not an expectation everywhere. Whereas the context change and um, I'm sure, you know, I, you didn't say this, but it sounded, I'm inferring, so I'm, I'm, I want to confirm, it feels like there's a, a, a culture around you where that is almost an expectation, and, and people want more because there's an expectation that that's the learning that's going to be happening. So I'm curious about if that's true, if you could share that, or maybe clarify that I misunderstood, and then if you don't mind sharing how you respond to that. So I'm hearing a little bit from the UCLA responses that I give them more. They ask for more, so I give them more. And I am learning, it sounds like you're saying, I'm being pushed to learn more. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, how did you handle the pushback that you got when you were at the University of Kansas? Because that's a different context, but way more common for, for many anti-racist teachers. So I'm just curious to hear more about that. Yeah, um, yes, I was nodding the whole time. So yes, everything that you said, <laughs> correct. Um, and, um, you know, it's interesting because I'm on the tenure track now and, um, you know, in the first two years, I had a lot of anxiety about my teaching. And to be honest, the first year I did have some major pushback from students and it was way more about my identity, right? And it was actually from people that held the same identities that I did, right? So women of color, mixed race women of color. And I thought that that was fascinating. And I'm still doing a lot of work around like, well, what does that mean? And, and what does that mean for higher education? Maybe it means nothing. Um, but responding to the students at University of Kansas was really interesting because I wasn't on the tenure track. I did have a lot of anxiety because I was like, these students hate me and they're so rude to me in the classroom. But it took them, it, it took them about 10 weeks to warm up. And then, you know, on my teaching evals, I had one student specifically be like, I hated this professor in this class in the beginning and now I like understand that that was because of my privilege like this class taught me that right and I think that that again is kind of an outlier experience that 10 weeks is not going to make a student like have these mind-blowing um, understandings but I just trudged through because it was the only way I knew how to teach and if I was truly embodying CRT as an embodied theory I wasn't going to turn back and of course I had the privilege of that because I was out of there after a year like I stepped, stepped foot in Kansas and was like we're doing this for one year and no more, right? And I'll just say finally, one of the things I live by um, because of CRT is something that Derek Bell wrote about. And he asked a question, uh, like Lori Latson-Billens, he asked, racism is here to stay. 
now what, right? What do we do about it? And so he makes this, this argument that it's here to stay, it's here to be, it's gonna be here forever, but that doesn't mean that we're gonna stop trying to deconstruct it and push against it, right? We all know, he makes this kind of this analogy, we all know that we're gonna die, but that doesn't stop us from living and living life to the fullest. It makes us wanna live more. And so that's very much um, how I view teaching is that, I know I'm not going to solve all the issues. I know that there will be the absence of racism after I've taught this course, but I do know that there's some sort of change that I've made, that I've chipped away at something. Thank you so much. Um, Saran, what are your thoughts about um, how students have responded, you know, like what, you know, to the work that you've done, you talked about that reflective journals and what kind of, and you talked about two different contexts, you know, mm. one context being homogeneous where you were in Jamaica and, you know, you're really talking about what would be here, a minoritized population, but mm -hmm. they're very much the norm. And then now mm. you're in this context where it's, you know, racially diverse classroom. Can you speak to me a little bit about what kind of responses you've gotten? How do they respond? Yeah, Jess and I got some twin, twinning life. So basically, and I've wrote, I've written about this, right? I've published this in or the book that we did with Professor Tewitt and um, Hames Davidson um, about the critical inclusive pedagogies around the globe. And essentially, I wrote that in my first semester returning home. It was my first semester, first month teaching the um, master's students. And I forgot what it was. I believe it was... Um, at the masses in educational measurement students and I was teaching them around the areas of educational research, right? This baseline course. And the, the class representative came to see me in my office hours, my first time, I kid you not. And she's like, Dr. Stewart, I've come on behalf of my class to let you know that um, your style of teaching, it's too foreign. <laughs> we, we, we are not built for this. This is too foreign minded. All this me, me, anti-racist, anti-what? Like, what are you talking about? Um, critical race, what? And research and philosophy of the mind and group work. We came here to take notes and for you to lecture to us. She kindly let me know that. Whoa, did the students really approach Dr. Stewart to share that they disagreed with their teaching style? That's interesting. Have you ever had that take place, Milagros? Actually, Omar, it's quite common. There are a number of published articles and books that report the challenges that BIPOC faculty experience, especially at historically white colleges and universities. For example, there's this fantastic book that covers this topic well, entitled Presumed Incompetent, The Intersections of Race and Class for Women in Academia. And there's also a really great article entitled Teaching in the Line of Fire. It is a reality, especially for black women in the professoriate, um, that we need to name and make sure we continue to address. So I'm glad that Dr. Stewart raised this issue. With that, Tanisha is now um, completing her second master's in Canada, about to do her PhD, and she's one of my research students, right? And I kept that day though, when she left the office, I felt so abysmal that I called my mentor and said to him that, what do I do? How do I continue to do this work? And essentially he said, you know, you got to trust the process. Right. And I constantly was like, well, this clearly is not the process because there's so much pushback and immediately you kind of are pushed against what is normative and the culture of the institution versus what you thought was going to be liberating 
and emancipatory. And one thing that reminded me, similar to what Jess had said, is that I really didn't know any other way to teach. It was the way in which I knew would have centered around equity, around critical race theory, around um, an anti-colonialist colonialist perspective. And I knew that there would be constant pushback, but I kept on keeping on. And I've seen the fruits of that label, right? Seven years old, you know, these students are doing amazing things, right? And they're critical change agents and critical scholars. And so I'll read about one of the students who actually I'd written about them and they were like, truth be told, I'm going to read a small quote from what they said. Truth be told, I was very skeptical about the titles of the documents and even the size of some of the documents. Teaching in the line of fire, your blues ain't like my blues, every shut eye ain't sleep and who am I? Every title I came across made me envision about my life and what I might read about it. It was as if I was awakened by the new knowledge and insights that I was extracting from these documents. The blanket that was over my eyes vanished and I no longer wanted to stifle my thoughts and questions about race, color, or class. And so what I found was at the complete risk of getting horrible evaluations, <laughs> not being tenured, there is something to say about faculty who go about this work really just doing it in the pursuit of equity and justice and social justice work that you just keep going on right um and i don't have an answer if that is the right thing because i don't believe it's for everyone i'll be very honest about that as well but i've seen in in the jamaican context this very revolutionary re re revelation of doing this work when there's resistance met at the front end here it's an interesting bag because it's a diverse a much more diverse pool of students that I am dealing with um, versus a very homogenous, full Jamaican, Afro-Caribbean, um, first generation set of master students, right? Here, it's a mix. Um, and what I found here is really interesting in terms of there is a diversity of understanding that the Black-White binary cannot just be the pervasive binary, right? Pervasive way in which you go about your pedagogy um, and so inclusion takes a whole different set of steps where pushing against comfort zones and comfort being uncomfortable is not a thing it is seen as um a threat in some cases and so i'm still trying to debate what that means here but i'm persistent in the work of constantly showing what does what should equity look like and also understanding that when we do this work we ourselves are a work in progress and i don't believe that we were ever taught that i think we assumed that the scholars who were teaching us knew all the answers and therefore they must have it right <laughs> But I've really quickly learned that that is not the case. We are all a work in progress in this work and we must constantly try to grow in it as well. So, Thank you so much for joining us. Part two of our conversation with Dr. Saran Stewart and Jessica Harris will be released next Wednesday, February 10th, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is made possible with support from the Office for Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut. We are also extremely grateful for our colleagues who offered valuable guidance and support, including the awesome team from the Yukon 360 podcast. It takes a village and it takes heart. Thank you.